Okay, so tonight as we go forward in 2 Kings, we're going to pick it up in chapter 20. And we've been, we've had Hezekiah for a couple weeks, so that's been nice to have Hezekiah as the focal point of our studies. And we still have a little bit of Hezekiah tonight. Tonight we're actually going to see four different kings, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, and then we get to Josiah. And so we're going to get four different kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, because of course now the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken away into captivity. They're off, they're off the grid. Now it's just the southern kingdom with Judah. And so we pick it up with Hezekiah, and we pick it up where the, that whole thing with Sennacherib and the Syrian army surrounding Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord came and struck them down. They went back home. Sennacherib was struck down in the temple of his false god by his own children, and that played out and went its way. But there in Jerusalem, we go forward from this incredible apex of an event, this cruxable of crisis for King Hezekiah, the great king, who did all the things that were pleasing to the Lord. And we pick it up with a very interesting story on the back end. And so often when something dramatic or climactic happens, we often find ourselves on the back end with something that is almost even a greater cruxable than the one we just cleared. And it's like, it's a test of where we're at with the Lord and how we handle things. And that's what we get for Hezekiah in chapter 20. First one reads this. In those days, that is the days after Sennacherib and his army were defeated, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he, Hezekiah, turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone into, out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of fig. So they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he's spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, Well, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, let the shadow go backward 10 degrees or contrary to nature. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he, the Lord, brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, had built a sundial, a modern form of uh, technology, actually, at that time. And so this is that story where Hezekiah is told he's going to die. Think about this. This crisis that he's had. I mean, they're surrounded by the Assyrian army. The northern kingdom has fallen. Laakish has fallen. It's just, it's incredible trying to really fully get the context of what's going on for Hezekiah, by God's definition, the leader of his people. And as if it's not enough to lead the people in this incredibly intense time to come through this for the nation, for everybody, then he gets sick 
and he's sick close to death. As you live a rich, full life, if you do, you see plenty of people who don't. And some sicknesses and some deaths, you can see them coming, and some you can't see at all. And some, they happen really fast. Some people have the opportunity to come to terms with their mortality, and some, their life is taken from them in an instant without any foresight to know it's coming. Some might just have a little window where you don't feel good, and by the time you realize it, it's really bad news, and you've got a matter of weeks or months to live. Our good friend John, who used to fellowship here, that was like that for John. John loved this church. He came to this church. He used to travel a lot, and he'd bring back gifts to me from around the world. Really neat man. And during COVID, uh, he, he was here and there, and, and uh, I hadn't seen him for a few weeks. And then we saw him, and he had lost so much weight. Like, he would lost, like, a lot of weight, like, like 30, 40 pounds. And he was, you know, he's a healthy guy. Like, wow. And next thing we know, he was dying. And before you knew it, I'm there at Kaiser Anaheim on the ninth floor, or whatever, and praying with him and worshiping, worshiping the Lord with him and preparing, his, preparing him for eternity. And it was just such a profound time. And, and I'm like, how do, you know, you're leaving the room, and when you're leaving the room, you're saying goodbye forever to someone that you're their pastor for years. And I always remember, and I've told the story, but there was a curtain, like a curtain that kind of went like this, almost like a shower curtain. And he was in the bed right there, and I'm leaving, and I, I was like, I love you, John. You know, and you know, remember John used to always do thumbs up. Those, you know, he's always gave us a thumbs up, right? Was, that, was, that was just like thumbs up always. And he looked at me, and he gave me the thumbs up, and I just said, I'll, I'll see you in the kingdom, and I'll see you in glory. And he gave me the thumbs up, and I gave him the thumbs up, and I walked out. See, verse 1 came to John so fast. So fast. Jennifer's stepmom, Joanne, you know, she's a part of our life for 30 years. And it was a time when Timmy was graduating from Cal Maritime, our son Timmy. And I'll never forget it. We got word that she had pancreatic cancer. It's like, oh, that's generally not good because usually when you discover it, it's, it's, it's terminal. And she was at Timmy's graduation and she was super friendly and excited and all this stuff, which was kind of out of character for her, to be honest. But she had just totally was a different, super friendly, like not really opinionated. In times past, she would be pretty opinionated about things. And, and, but she was super positive and excited for Timmy's big day. And they loved Timmy and their Bay Area people. And he went to college in the Bay Area. And, and I didn't see her for a few months. And then Jennifer and I went by the house to see them in San Diego where she lived. And it was a divine appointment. And Jennifer prayed over her. And she stepped into eternity the next day. What I always remember about the day that that happened with Joanne is I saw a book in their house, and they were very, uh, she was very anti-religious, as long as I had known her of any form, and there was a, it was like a Catholic book about kind of finding your faith and all this stuff, and I, I, I saw this book, and I thought, well, she's been trying to find, because she was originally just kind of a Methodist background, and I'm like, she's trying to prepare herself for eternity. She's reading a book with a you know, Catholic influence about Jesus or whatever by some priest about how to prepare yourself. Or as it says here, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. It's a, very, it's a good thing to think about eternity. And of course, being under my teaching, you know I talk about it all the time. I'm excited about eternity. 
I'm not in a hurry to die painfully or anything like that, or, or you either, but like, I'm excited about eternity, and I'm excited to go to heaven and go to glory. I'm excited to fulfill what God has for me in time before I do, and I want to embrace that day. But verse 1 is just so sobering. He was sick and near death. Like, is there ever a good time to be sick and near death? Really, like, think about it. Like, if I said to you, hey, God says you're going to be sick and near death. You're like, well, can we, like, kind of kick that down the road? I mean, I'd say, like, hey, how about in 2041 when I'm 80? You when I'm 80, I'm slowing down anyways. Let's go for sick and near death when I'm 80. How about good health and vibrant till I'm 79? But what if you said, no, you're going to be sick and near death when you're 62? I'm like, well, that's 2023. No one wants to hear and wake up sick and near death. And then on top of that, to have the prophet, you know, when Isaiah shows up, be like, hey, it's a prophet. It's 50-50, right? What's the prophet going to say? Everything Isaiah said to Hezekiah so far is really good. Hey, the Lord's going to deal with your enemies. The Lord's going to deal with that. You tell the virgin daughters to taunt that guy. Like everything Isaiah says, like, hey, I like what the prophet says. It's good news. Hey, here's Isaiah. The prophet's like, what's the word? Set your house in order for you shall die and not live. But the reality that each of us must come to at some point in our life is that we will die and not live in that sense, in the temporal. And we have to come to terms with that. That we have to come to terms. And as a minister of the gospel for 35 years, I've been alongside a lot of people who come to terms with their mortality and the reality that they're going to die soon. And I think the important thing about this text that we see here is this exhortation from Isaiah, set your house in order. And when we think about what does this mean to set your house in order? So you're sick and you're going to die. Eternity's coming. And he's told by the prophet Isaiah, set your house in order. He was the great leader of the people, like God said to him earlier. But for this moment, there's this gripping reality that he's going to die and not live. And then he begs for his life. You don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever begged for your life? Max Lucado, in one of his books, had this story called A Little Bit of Hanging, where you almost died, but you didn't. I, they had the Eddie contest in Hawaii this weekend. It was like 60-foot surf. They have this event once every five to ten years. And so Waimea Bay, and I almost drowned at Waimea Bay. I, I was stuck at Waimea Bay in, in 60, 50, 50, 60-foot surf by myself in open ocean and building surf. And the sense of reality that I could die came upon me. And that day so clear my mind because I, I, I knew what I, I found out what I'm like when I'm 23 and I think I'm going to die. And I'll tell you what I did. The first thing I did was confess all the sins I could think of. Every single sin I could think of in my life. I wanted to make the slate clean. I'm, if I'm dying in the Pacific Ocean today trying to save my life, I, I'm gonna, I, I, need, I need to set my house in order and that I'm ready to step into eternity. When I had the vertigo attack about six years ago, where I was feeling fine, I was at a softball game, a Calvary Chapel softball game, and I began to feel sick over here in Costa Mesa. By the time I got home, I was spinning, and my son-in-law, Jacob, Jacob drove me home, and I was laying in bed, and the whole room was spinning, and then I started throwing up from vertigo. Now, that's very serious vertigo. I'd never had it before in my life. My arms went numb, and the uh, EMTs came, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, I thought for sure I was dying. And as I'm in the, in the ambulance, I'm like, I'm dying, and what, I'm confessing my sin. 
I remember I said to Jennifer, I'm sorry. She said, for what? I'm like, everything? Because that's what husbands do when they think it's their last moment. They do everything, just any category. I'm just sorry for everything. And she said, you're not going to die. Uh, and she was right, at least at that time. But I've had that, this experience. And so I like what in, in the next verse of Hezekiah, we see when he prayed to the Lord, he could say to the Lord, I pray Remember how I walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and did what was good in your sight. Let me just say this before we move on from this. Isn't that who you want to be when the prophet Isaiah shows up and says, set your house in order, you're going to die today? Don't you want to look in the mirror and look at that woman in the mirror or look at that man in the mirror and say, you know what? By the grace of God, I've walked in truth and I've had a loyal heart as much as I could and can be even on this day and I've done what's right in your sight. It's not about yesterday's failures. It's about today's heart and where you're at. And I, when I think, of the, because the Holy Spirit's going to, at some point, we're going to face eternity. And when that moment comes, I don't want it to be an oh no moment for you or for me. I want to know like, you know what? I am who I am. I've walked in truth. I've tried to do the right thing. My heart's loyal as best it can be. And you know what? I'm saved by grace. I'm saved through faith. And I've tried to do what's good in your sight, Lord. Here I am from glory to glory. Right? Worship generation, yes and amen. Like, we're, we're not earning that, that commendation on that day in that moment. But it's nice to know that your heart's in a good place when that day comes. See, repentance is turning toward the Lord. So sin is having your back to the Lord. So as long as we're going forward with the Lord, we're moving toward his glory and toward his kingdom. So when that moment comes, like, whoa, it's eternity, I'm here. That's who we want to be on that day. To have our house in order. And to really have our house in order on the day of the Lord means really to have our heart in order with the Lord. That our heart is in the... Remember, he's the one who's had a heart that's loyal to the Lord like David. And if our heart's right with the Lord, we're okay on the day of the Lord. Someone like... Jenny, your stepdaughter, may show up and pray over you on your last day. And the Holy Spirit will fill the room like he did when she prayed over Joanne. Like the Holy Spirit was in the room when I prayed with John before he stepped into eternity. I called Sam. Sam remembers. I called him when I left Anaheim. And I said, Sam, he's going to see the king tonight. He's going. You know, when you're at the airport and you're like, you're in your gate and they're calling you. And the thing about eternity is you can't say, oh, I'm going to catch a later flight. I don't want to fly. Like, you're getting on that flight. And it's one way to eternity. So when that flight comes and it's your day, may you say like Hezekiah, when they tell you it, it's the sickness and death, you're going to die set in order, may you be able to look before the Lord and say, you know what, I've walked before you in truth with loyal heart with, and do what was good in your sight. That's who we want to be. That's a great application for us. Now God spared his life, gave him 15 years, good for him. You know, he, he got to live, you know, he's like 39 at the time when God extended his life. Who wants to step into eternity at 39? Certainly no one. Uh, 54 doesn't sounds pretty young when you're 61, but you know, um, God gave him a miraculous sign and spared his life. It's, it's a beautiful story for him. It worked out well for him and God was good to him. God spared him. Verse 12, we read on at that time, Brodak Beladon, the son of Beladon, king of Babylon, modern Iraq, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick and Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment and all of his armory and all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say and from where did they come 
to you. And so Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's, there's nothing among my treasures they've not shown, that I've not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen, hear, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Well, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all of his might, how he made a pool in the tunnel and brought the water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. This event that's recorded for us is also recorded for us in Second Chronicles, when we'll see Hezekiah again with quite a few more chapters for his life as recorded in Chronicles, which focuses on the Judah kings. But he was very wealthy. It's interesting, when God spared his life and he had the victory over the Assyrians, what happened is the people of the surrounding regions, the surrounding countries, even in Israel, people just celebrated his victory. He, he, he saved everyone. He saved their homes, their vineyards, their olive groves, all their wealth. And so people brought him wealth. He, he, he had a lot of wealth. Chronicles tells us he became profoundly wealthy in material possessions. Chronicles also tells us that he became lifted up in those possessions. But when God reproved him, because God tested him with him, when God reproved him, he humbled himself and received correction. So the blemish on his life is that when he became like a billionaire, he, he got kind of prideful about it. But the credit of his life, even in his latter years, in his mid-50s, is when he was stumbled by his pride and his wealth, he still humbled himself and received forgiveness from the Lord. And listen, Babylon's going to take everything away anyways. God already said, before we read the story about Sennacherib, God already said when Hosea fell that Judah was going to fall. Before he ever showed these guys from Babylon all of his wealth, God already said, it's going. It's going to be gone. Judah's going to captivity. So in a way, God, how he knows the end from the beginning, he knew it would go this way. And I just think it's kind of special that Hezekiah, when he failed and was approved, he still received it and was corrected in his older, in, in, the, later, in the later years, which is always, it's always admirable to receive correction at any time in life. But as we've seen with older people, it's even more admirable when you're older because we can get very set in our ways and be rigid and not be flexible and fluid with the correction of the Lord in our life. So that was it for Hezekiah. It ended. He said, you know, like, you know what? God's going to do, God's always going to do what's good, and at least there'll be peace and truth in my life. And who can know? You know, like, I feel bad for the generation that came after him, but God chooses our generation. You might think, oh, it would have been good to live in the 30s or the 40s or whatever, or, or you know, to be Prussian in the late 1800s and when they're rolling and conquering Europe. Listen, we are who we are, and we live when we live, and we live where we live. That's what Acts 17 says. So whether it seems like it's a great time to live in America in 2023, or it's, it's better than 2033 or 2053 or 2073 for our grandkids, who can know? This is the time we live. And the main thing is, is that we've walked in truth with a loyal heart and have done what's good in his sight. So when we get sick and die, we're ready for the day of the Lord, and our house is in order because our heart is in order. Amen? All right, chapter 21. 
Now, Manasseh was born during that time of Hezekiah's extension. So when Hezekiah had the extra 15 years, he had a son, and that's Manasseh, and he's, he's kind of the worst of the, the worst. So we pick it up with him in chapter 21. We read this, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. He was 12 years old when he became king, so he's a sixth grader. You know, the sixth graders that want to run the recess, you know, the playground at recess. He's, he's that guy, and he really does. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And I also think, why do the evil people live longer? You know, like, how's that work sometimes? So he, he lived a rich, full life. I mean, 12 and 55, 67, there you go. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So he's like the Canaanites. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He raised up altars to Baal and made a wooden image, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. He also made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying, sorcery, used witchcraft, consulted spirits and mediums. And he... And he you know, he did, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger the Lord. He even set a carved image of Asherah. He also made the image of Asherah that he'd made in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, David's son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever, and I'll, I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers only if they are careful to do according to all I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. See, the irony about this Asherah is like a pornographic image. So he put like this pornographic image in the worship area itself. Like there was just no restraining this guy. He's just got no... When you, when you meet certain people, you go, they just have no fear of the Lord. That's this guy. He had no fear of the Lord. Just that He's compared to the law. In other words, what he did is compared to the law of Moses, which is really bad right here. Then we read in verse 9. But they, they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So in other words, all that we read in the book of Joshua, all those people driven out, he's worse than all of them. And the Lord spoke by his servants to the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he acted more wickedly than the Amorites who were before him, and has made Judah sin with idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them to the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they've done evil in my sight and they have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin in which he made Judas sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers, was buried in the garden of his own house, uh, was in his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Now, Second Chronicles gives us some good insight on this man as well. So he reigned a long time, Manasseh, and he did great evil. 
His dad did such good things dismantling what his grandfather Ahaz had done, uh, but then he brought it all back, and he had a long reign. You know, 50 years is a long time. I was thinking about this. I'll tell you how long 50 years is. You ready for you American citizens? Richard Nixon to now. That's a long time. Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Carter, Reagan, two terms, Bush the first, Clinton, two terms, Bush the second, two terms, Obama, two terms, Trump, Biden, all that time, my life, pretty much my life in California, 1972 to now is, you know, 50 years. That's how long this guy was the king. That's a long time for this kind of evil. See, in America, we have an ebb and flow of what certain kings do or Supreme Court justices and Congress, right? It's an ebb and flow, ebb and flow, whatever. This is straight up evil from day one for 50 plus years. It would be so hard to be alive and watch this guy do this stuff, especially if you have the memory like you're older and you remember what it was like when his dad did all the good stuff in the good old days when you stared down Senate crib and the angel of the Lord came and struck down all those guys and sent them back to Syria with their tail between their legs. But you know, we say this time and time again in the book of Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, it's not what's going on around us, but what's going on in us. Manasseh was taken away into captivity to Assyria. Chronicles tells us that. So his dad, who did all the right things, avoided going to Assyria, but he was taken away. God took, took him away to Assyria. And there in Assyria, in captivity, he repented of all of his sins. And Manasseh came back to Judah after he'd repented. The Lord restored him the crown. He came back. You know what he did? He tore all this stuff down. Isn't that crazy? He tore all this stuff down, which tells us we should never lose hope with anybody, right? I mean, this is like, if you didn't know what Chronicles told you about this guy, you'd be like, well, good enough. Bury him in the garden. Let's move on to the next guy. But he actually went into captivity. And unlike a lot of other kings who went away, he humbled himself and God restored him. And he did the very end of his life, he did good. It's kind of like the thief on the cross. When's it the right time to do the right thing? Right now. Right now. Like the story of Ray Horton there at Drug and Alcohol Ministry 35 years ago. Ray Horton comes in. We're sharing the gospel with him. Like, what keeps you from coming to Christ right now? And he goes, $20,000 worth of crystal meth in my closet. Well, Ray Horton from Vista with $20,000 of crystal meth in your closet. Let's go to your house and pour it out before the Lord. And let's go forward with the kingdom. Because right now is the day of the Lord. Right now is the right time to make it right. And he did. And the rest is Jesus' history on his life and church history for all of us that we're part of. Two years later, he's teaching children's ministry at Calvary Chapel Vista with his wife. So praise the Lord. It's always, see, the thief on the cross found mercy. As long as someone has a breath of life, we want to just love, hopes all things, bears all things, and believes all things. And, and no matter how evil or difficult someone might be, you want to hold out hope. And I have to say, going back to my, my mother-in-law, Jennifer's stepmom, I, I restrained from saying anything for 35, 33, 32 years because all she ever did was attack things pretty much that were true, just, noble, and praiseworthy. And I held my peace for three decades. I never, I never engaged her. They came to baby dedications or whatever. They came to certain church things they had to do, and they sat, you know, she sat in her position of high and mighty judge and jury of, of everything. But, you know, 
the comfort for me that the last day she was alive, I saw a book where she was looking for truth in the person of Jesus Christ in her bedroom. It's never too late. See, it's never for us to write anybody off. And Manasseh reminds us of that. And by the way, it says in verse 16 that he shed much innocent blood in Jerusalem. He filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Now, the Bible talks a lot about shedding innocent blood. I mentioned this in passing on Saturday night about God's accounting for shedding innocent blood. I'll take us to Jesus on this one. Because when the priests were crying out for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate washed his hands in the Gospel of Matthew and said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. He understood the blood guilt of what was going to go down when they took Jesus to crucify him. Then when the apostles were preaching in the book of Acts in chapter 6, the second time they're incarcerated, the priest said, these men are intent on bringing the blood of this man, Jesus, upon us. Which is what they said to do, because when before Pilate they said all that, the people said to Pilate, his blood be upon us and on our children, and it was. But here's the beautiful thing about the innocent blood of Jesus being shed. It's that blood that saves us, right? Isn't that the irony of all things? The shedding of innocent blood is the worst thing that you can do. And Pilate wasn't off the hook. The priests and the leaders weren't off the hook. Caiaphas and Ananias, they weren't, none of them were off the hook. But the beautiful thing is, even as Jesus was on the cross, he looked upon them and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And his innocent blood being shed for us is our redemption. It's the reason we can sing the songs with Danny tonight. It's the reason we can leave this place with joy and peace and hope in our hearts because of that innocent blood. Isn't it the, the mystery of the universe that human beings who shed innocent blood are saved by God who gave innocent blood that he shed? his son for us. In Jerusalem, in the city with so much blood guilt 600, 700 years before with here, this story of Manasseh, that in the same city where all this blood would be shed, it was all moving toward the day that Christ, the ultimate one, the lamb without sin, the lamb of God who takes away this in the world, his blood would be shed to give us redemption. Isn't that amazing? What a beautiful thing to think about, right? All the mysteries of how God... Well, I just read Romans chapter 5 in my devotion where, you know, in the first Adam we all die, in the second Adam all are made alive. In the first Adam there's condemnation. In the second Adam in Christ there's justification. And it's just, it's such a contrast. And I just sat there reading that today going like, ah, the mystery of it all and the beauty of it all. We're so guilty and so lost and so dead and so in sin and so condemned. And if it wasn't for the Father sending his son, the second Adam, we'd all just perish under the wrath of God. Instead, we're saved because innocent blood was shed. Remember when the Passion movie came out, everyone was like, well, who put Jesus on the cross? The priest, the Jews, uh, the, the Romans, or whatever. And I remember Gregory saying, the Father did because he so loved us. And that's the truth. So whatever innocent blood might have been shed at our hands in times past, or whatever reason that we might feel we have blood guilt on our life, isn't it wonderful to know that when we come to Christ, we're forgiven, we're forgiven. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sins. We're forgiven and we can leave the worst decisions of our life behind us to never be seen again. Therefore, forgetting what lies behind, I press on to what lies ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I heard an interesting quote from the motivational speaker, Brian Tracy, today. Just totally got my attention in a profound way. 
He fought karate, and he said his office instructors taught him that you always move forward in a fight. If you just move forward a little bit, you just move forward a little bit, just a little bit, always moving forward. And, you know, it's always forward with Joey Brand, right? So he's talking my language. Always forward, always forward. And he said something that totally got just, oh, my mind is about, oh, on the freeway, the 55. I was like, I almost want to roll down my window and say, did you just hear this? Because he said the moment you start to go backwards, you take 50% of your attention and put it behind you. And that's what the devil does when he has us looking backward to our mistakes of the past. We look behind us. Leave it behind you. Always forward. Manasseh moved forward from his failures. And Christ sat on the cross and shed his blood so we could move forward from our failures. I don't like innocent blood shed, but I'm glad the son's innocent blood was shed for me and for you that we are saved by grace through faith and have this redemption that's an anchor to the soul. Yes and amen. All right, now Amnon pops in here. He's a little transitory fella. You know when you're on a road trip, you don't even get off of that exit? He's that guy. Amnon was 22, verse 19, when, uh, two years, 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years. In Jerusalem, his mother's name was uh, Meshulameth, the daughter of Hazros of Jodbab, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked. So even after his father repented, he didn't follow that same example. And he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them, and he forsook the Lord God of of his fathers and, and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Then his servants, then then the servants of Amnon, his servants, conspired against him, killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who conspired against King Amnon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Amnon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. And so this guy, you know, he was there in the shadows of his dad living a long time. He came to power at 22. He died at 24. You you do the math. He had a son when he was 16. That son is Josiah. He never got it. You know, eight years being a, a, young, a, a, young, a young dad, he never grew up. One thing when you're young, when you're young and you have children young, it, it should mature you. Hopefully it does. This guy never grew up. He had every reason to be a good king, and he chose not to be. So now we come to chapter 22 in Josiah. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So in this introduction, we get an introduction similar to Hezekiah. This guy is all time. Of the 20 kings in Judah, and there were 20 kings in Judah, only two get the description where they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and then they got all the bonus. They didn't turn aside to the right or to the left, or like Hezekiah, like he did all the things like his father David. So in 250 plus years of Judah kings, 20 kings, 19 kings in the north, 39 total, there are only two kings in that timeline of Jewish history that by the introductory summary of their life from the Holy Spirit to us, there are only two that are the best of the best. And we studied Hezekiah, and now we come to Josiah, who is the same thing. Now, going forward from this, we read in verse 3, this introduction. Now, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So he's 26 now. 
that, and he lived to be 39, so he's got 13 years to go. That, that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have delivered, or excuse me, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them uh, deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters, builders, and masons, and to buy timber, hewn stone to repair the house. However, there, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hands because they deal faithfully. Brief parenthetical thought. Manasseh destroyed the temple uh, internally. Manasseh in Chronicles tells us did a lot of damage to the house of the Lord. Now, this building is already hundreds of years old since Solomon built it. And all you have to do is look at the houses that are 100 years old in Huntington Beach and realize, you know, those houses on Lake Street, some of those houses like Frankfurt and that area, there's still some of those old houses from before the 1930s earthquake in Long Beach destroyed a lot of homes back when it was oil days. And there's still some old homes there. And uh, actually, Timmy, my son Timmy and his wife looked at one a couple months ago as a possible place to live. And it it was over 100 years old. When you have a really old home, there's a lot of things that are, you know, like a lot of needs work. So the temple of the Lord was hundreds of years old, and it needed work. And what's interesting here is when you read this text, you almost feel like, haven't we read this story before? It sounds like Jehoahash, right? Like Jehoahash did the same thing. He refurbished the temple, and he had the workers, and he said, hey, they're, they're faithful. They, we can trust them. These are general contractors. They're faithful. So a couple generations later, these guys are faithful and can be trusted in the work. But now we get to some key thoughts here. Verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphat, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So basically the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. The law of God. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Hey, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and it's been delivered to the hand of those who are doing the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hey, hey Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, uh, Hiakim the son of Shaphan, Akabor the son of uh, Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah, servant of the king, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book. That has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim, Echabor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess. So now we have a woman prophetess. And she's the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Garment industry, right? She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her. They spoke with her. And then and she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of this book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me, and they burn incense to other gods, and, and that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Verse 18. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you've heard, because your heart was tender 
and you've humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I'll bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Well, first of all, just the overview of this is so... Josiah has the book read of the law. And you know, in Deuteronomy, God says, hey, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So it was always there, just like the New Testament. Like the New Testament makes very clear to us what, you know, our accountability to the gospel, our accountability to be saved by grace, our accountability to be under the wrath of God if we reject Christ, you know, the return of the Lord coming back, the book of Revelation, the prophecies of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. Like, it's, it's all there. Like the accountability of planet Earth for every generation until the Lord comes back, it's all there. God has clearly spoken what he's going to do in the future through the Bible. It's all there. He foretells the future. In fact, interesting enough about Josiah, remember back in the beginning, back in Kings, early on when the kingdom was divided, the one prophet, the one prophet went to the northern kingdom and he prophesied about the false priest, how a king would arise in centuries later named Josiah who would burn their bones on that altar. And Josiah's going to do that. God always tells us the future before it happens. And it's just this accountability. That's what the Bible says time and time again. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Choose life or choose death. God always gives us a self-determined choice to choose obedience. So all around him, Josiah's had people that chose the wrong thing. He chooses the right thing. And so the Lord says, because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself, you tore your clothes, you wept, you made good choices, compound elements of good choices. You made a lot of them. In one day when you had this law read to you, you, you realized you were spiritually sensitive and you realized the gravity and the reality of the situation and you were already walking with me and you humbled yourself before me, you tore your clothes, you wept, and it matters. Like the A.W. Tozer book, God tells a man who cares, God tells a woman who cares. When that which grieves the Holy Spirit grieves us, that is a good thing. When things quench you that quench the Lord, that's a good thing. It should be that way because it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, and the Spirit is building us up and moving us toward the kingdom. And things that are offensive to the Lord, they'll be offensive to us. We should be grieved by what grieves the Lord. We should render our garments and render our heart, as it says in the book of Joel, over things that are hard to endure. And we live in a time that's been very hard to endure and to watch. And surely the Lord has been very grieved by things that have happened in my timeline of life. And if you're younger, like your early 20s, all the more so. Because watching the last 25 years of planet Earth go the way it's gone has been hard to watch, difficult to endure. But again, it's not what's going on outside externally, but what's going on internally. Because yet again, like with Hezekiah, the Lord says, because your heart was tender. It's always about the heart. And Josiah would not see the bad day. You know, when my mom stepped into eternity December 29th of, of 2019, it was, a, it was a very difficult time. But by the time everything was unfolding by May of 2020, I was just kind of glad my mom didn't have to see that in her country. I was pretty actually glad my mom didn't have to see what happened in this country. 
to see everything just so disrespected, things that are true and just and noble, and, and truth made falsehood and falsehood made truth, and evil made good and good made evil. I was taught by my parents to work hard and love my country and respect my neighbor and respect all people. It was so hard to watch, and I was so grateful that my mom never saw that. I'm so grateful the last two weeks of my mom's life, she saw my daughter teach the women's study event at the Karis Building, saw Cousin Jimmy walk at the police academy, and had a wonderful Christmas Eve with her family. And even when she's on her deathbed, she got out of the emergency room and went and had communion, and then went back to her deathbed in the hospital and died. My mom was like, man, you don't mess with those Midwest Irish Catholic women, man. She's, she's going to go the way she, you know, uh, hey, a final thought on this chapter with Josiah. Verse 8. It's a beautiful phrase. They found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And let me leave us with a, a good principle of the kingdom right here. When you make steps in the right direction with the Lord, you keep finding good things in the future with the Lord. When you make good decisions, right steps with the Lord, you'll keep moving toward good decisions and better things and greater things with the Lord. Because Josiah, when he was 16, it's not recorded here, but when he was 16, he committed his life to the Lord. Chronicles tells us that. And then he did certain things at 20. And here he is at this time in his life. It was at 26, 8 and 18, he's 26. When he was 20, when he was 16, he committed his life to the Lord. So guys, younger people, that's a high school camp, right? You know, that's a recommitment at Green Valley, right? That's a, I'm making a commitment to the Lord at 16. 16, you're going to drive a car and you've made that commitment to the Lord. Your parents' faith is now your faith. 16. That's what he did. At 20, he said, I'm going to go after the idols. At 20, he began to tear down all the things that Amnon had rebuilt after Manasseh died. And then at 26, he says, let's, cl- let's clean up the temple and let's get these people back to work. This is the house of the Lord. Let's have some pride around here. Let's get to work and let's fix these things and do these things. So he's moving forward. See, it's, 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 it's the, what they call the compound effect. The more decisions you make in the right direction, you're building equity and wealth toward the right things. But it works both ways. Because people who build their life around the compound effect of sin and evil and rejecting the Lord, it works against them. And you just, you get the, you know, the, the career criminal. You get the cycles of drugs and alcohol abuse and, and physical abuse and spousal abuse and those things because it's the compound effect. You keep sowing in this direction, and before you know it, the seedling's a giant oak tree, and it's hard to move. But the compound effect with the Lord is as you keep from the time you're 16 at 20 and 26, and you're, you're just going forward with the Lord. And here's a beautiful thing that I like about this verse in verse 8. When you made the commitment to clean out the temple, guess what? You get to find something special on the way. If you go farther with the Lord, he'll go farther with you. Hey, looky, looky, I got a fish on the hooky. Look what I found in the temple, a copy of the law of the Lord. If you don't clean out the temple, you don't find the copy of the law of the Lord. It's like what we say with goals. Your goals should be out of reach but in sight. And if you just get, you go toward the goal that's in sight, out of reach, and once you get it, you'll see the next goal in front of you because you get to that mountain. You, see, you can see your horizon, what's next. That's how it is with the Lord. And if you dig out, what I'm saying is if, if you go forward with the things of the Lord and you're going from glory to glory and now the next thing is clean out the temple and you find the law of the Lord and now this is the new thing in your life with the law of the Lord and now you read the law of the Lord and it moves you this way with the Lord, you rend your garment, your heart's tended to the Lord, you're going from glory to glory. 
It's like it says in 2 Corinthians, now in a mirror, but we're being transformed from glory to glory. That's what we're doing. See, this is why we want to walk with the Lord daily. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. My word will abide in you and you'll ask what you will. My father will do it. And by this, they'll know you're my disciples that you love one another. The fruit is love. The fruit is people. The fruit is the impact of our life reflecting Jesus to a fallen world to the last day when we get sick and die. See, to me, there's something so beautiful that when you're just doing the next thing that the Lord's put on your heart to do, you're going to clean up the temple, and then you find the law of the Lord, and it takes you farther and deeper and stronger with the Lord. See, that's why it's always about always forward with Jesus Christ. Forgetting what's behind, I press on to what lies ahead to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Not that I've yet attained, but the many of us are mature in mind have this thought in you as well. We are going onward, forward, and upward. Clean out the temple, find the law of the Lord, move on to the next thing from glory to glory. Isn't that beautiful? If you don't clean out the temple, you won't find the law of the Lord. God tells the woman who cares. God tells the man who cares. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it'll be open. If you ask, you will receive. But you got to keep going forward and keep making deposits on the good things of the kingdom that you're growing and you're becoming a woman of God from glory to glory and a man of God from glory to glory. I look at verse 8 and I think that's who I want to be. I want to be going after that thing that's a little bit out of my reach, like Hudson Taylor or William Carey or Amy Carmichael or Lottie Moon or some great missionary or Kay Smith or Chuck Smith or anyone in between. I want to be that person. And when I get to that, I want to be like, no, we're not satisfied here. Pastor Chuck, you got a big tent, but there's so much more to do. There's this up here. There's this over there. There's that in that country. There's that in that country. From here to to eternity with glory, from glory to glory. So go clean out the temple and tell me what you found. Because it'll be something deeper, farther, stronger with the Lord, the next thing on the horizon with the king. Yes and amen.